Good morning, church family. Our scripture reading today is going to be taken from the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And I'm going to be reading from another translation than what we normally use. I'm going to be using the English Standard Version, and those verses are found in the outline that's been provided as you came in to our worship center this morning. And also, those verses are going to be on the slide behind me. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is God's word. And it's not a very happy word at that, is it? Good morning, welcome to Windsor Road. If this is your first Sunday here, you're dead. (laughs) You're dead, you're a child of wrath, you're a son of disobedience. Hope you enjoy the coffee on the way home. Just not a really cheerful way to start a sermon. And if, and if this is your first time here at Windsor Road, you hear this and, I mean, you're, you may very well be thinking, all right, time out. This is why I stopped going to church. Right here. This is it. You know, some guy in a blue starch shirt telling me I'm dead. This is why I quit. And and if you're a member at Windsor Road Christian Church who invited this first time, soon to be last time guest here, I'm just sure that the verses like these set off every alarm on your cringe meter. So then why did I read these verses? Well, well, there's a couple of reasons why. Um, um, well, first of all, uh, our vision as a church, these verses help us understand what our vision is as a church. As, as our vision as a church is to be a life-changing community passionately pursuing Christ. Uh, and, and we put that on, on, on your bulletin this morning at the bottom. You'll read, our vision is, Windsor Road Christian Church is about being a life-changing community of authentic believers, passionately pursuing Christ, unshakably committed to His Word, thoroughly equipped to serve, and contagiously influencing our world for Him. That's, that's, our, that's what we want to become. That's God's calling upon this church community, is to be a life-changing community passionately pursuing Christ. And so, so these verses help us understand why we passionately pursue Christ, 
more than anything or anyone else. Jesus is the answer to every question at Windsor Road. Jesus matters most. And, and part of that vision is being unshakably committed to his word. And so every Sunday when you come here, you're going to hear from the pulpit, let's take our Bibles and let's open them. Because we're unshakably committed to his word. And so we're in this series uh, of messages concerning Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, believers in the first century in Ephesus. Ephesus was, Ephesus was to uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, um, Ephesus was to Asia Minor uh, what Chicago is to the Midwest. Uh, it was the gem of this, of this uh, wealthy province, the wealthiest province in the Roman Empire, a world power. And the Apostle Paul helped start a church in Ephesus, and they were house churches. They didn't meet, they didn't have a campus like ours. They would have met in homes, and so there would have been a series of house churches. And, and so, uh, and years later, while he was in prison for preaching the gospel, he writes this letter to the Christians, to the church, the house churches in Ephesus, and not only to in Ephesus, but in the entire zone or region there in, 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 in Asia Minor and the western coast. And so he's writing and he's encouraging. He's in prison. And actually, he doesn't begin, he doesn't begin this letter with, okay, you dirty, rotten sinners. He begins with the word saint in Ephesians 1.1, to the saints in Ephesus. He calls the believers saints because that's what you are if you're a Christian. He calls them saints. And then in, in uh, verses 3 through 14, there's this, there's this explosive doxology of praise uh, uh, in which Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And he proceeds to talk about what all those blessings are. He chose us. He uh, uh, predestined us. Uh, he lavished his love on us. Uh, 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 he redeemed us. He adopted us. I mean, all of these blessings uh, uh, come, that come to us from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and he, in which three times in Ephesians 1 he says we live to the praise of his glory and listen there's no one there's no one more than God who wants you in the new heavens and the new earth in new bodies no one and that's really what those first verses in Ephesians 1 1 to 14 are about and then and then in 15 to 23, the Apostle Paul kind of says, he goes into another explosion of prayer when he says, I want to pray for you. Now he's in prison. He's in prison. He doesn't say, oh, I need you to pray for me. No, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. I want to pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened so that you can know. I want you to know God more and more. I want you to know the hope the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. It's real. I want you to know that you, you are God's inheritance in Christ. You are God's prize in Christ. And then I want you to know the power, Paul says. That power 
that resurrected Jesus from the grave, that power that enthroned him, that power that has exalted him above every power and rule and authority and dominion, that power is available for you. It's accessible to you, his body, you saints, the believers. It's the power to love, the power to meet needs with love, the power to serve. It's the power to forgive. It's the power to grow, to grow in Christ. The gospel is the power to make transformational change in the life of people. That's power. And it's as if Paul says at this point in the letter, and you Ephesians know what I'm talking about when I talk about the power to change lives because you remember your old lives before you met Christ. Don't you? Don't you? You remember what you were before you came to Christ. And that's verses 1 through 3. <laughs> okay? Verses 1 through 3 talk about what they used to be before they came to Christ. And so, this, so, so that's the context here. I mean, Paul, these are not just verses of a rant from an irritable apostle. <laughs> He's talking to believers. He wants them to remember what you were. Interestingly enough, while some of us may cringe at these verses, those who first heard these words actually would have agreed with them. Those Ephesian believers would have heard these words and they would have said, yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's my story. I wonder if we would have that kind of honesty to be able to say that. Well, I know some of us do. Friday night at Celebrate Recovery, if you hear anybody speak, our speakers introduce themselves. Anybody who's up front at Celebrate Recovery always introduces himself with, Hi, I'm Randy. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, and I struggle with the sin of, and you name the sin. I struggle with the sin of self-righteousness. I struggle with the sin of legalism. I struggle with the sin of my temperament. And yes, while these are not the most cheerful verses in the Bible, they're true. They're true. They give a straightforward explanation as to why this world is broken. Why is this world broken anyway? Why are there terrorist attacks in New York City and over the world? Why are there attempted abductions in our community? Why is the most powerful and wealthiest nation on earth have the prison population that we have? Why? Why is that? Why does a gunman enter a, a salon and murder eight people? Why? And, and, and more specifically, why am I the way I am? Why is that? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't he? It's because of our sins and trespasses. And so Paul's big idea in verses 1 through 3 what he doesn't want you to forget, if you forget everything else, is this. You know, if we're not alive in Christ, we're dead in sin. Put it this way. Life without Christ is a living death. Life without Christ is a living death. And you were dead 
in your trespasses and sins. Not you were sick in sin or you had a fever in sin or you had a scratchy throat in sin. You're dead. Apart from Jesus Christ, you're not in the doghouse with God. You're in the morgue. And what I'd like to do is um, answer three questions I hear in these three verses. Question number one, okay, what do you mean by that, Randy? What does it mean to be dead in sin? I want to answer that. Secondly, what keeps people in spiritual death? What are the powers that keep us in the morgue? And then thirdly, what's the result? What's the end game? What's the, what, what does spiritual death lead to? Question number three. So, let's first deal with question number one. What? What? What is spiritual death? What does it mean to be dead in sin? Well, well, it's like physical death. In physical death, we lose all ability to function, to reason, or to sense. And yet, it's ironic here in these verses. In these verses, the dead are able to walk and act. When Paul first went to Ephesus, he really did see dead people. They got it from him. And to be dead in sin doesn't mean you can't do good. It doesn't mean that. You can still be dead in sin and be able to do a good deed. Listen, you can, you can still be dead in sin and live a moral life. You can be dead in sin and even be married for 50 years. You can. Yet Paul says they're living dead. They're upright and vertical, and yet they're severed from the creator of life. To be spiritually dead means to be unresponsive to God. No desire to know him, no wish for a relationship with him, and no strength to do anything for his glory. The spiritually dead have no sensation, no strength, and no splendor. And and they have no beauty in the eyes of God because they're a rotting corpse. And even if they wanted to please God, they couldn't, Paul says, because the entire course of their life, the entire course of their living death is under the control of three powerful courses. Which leads us to question number two. What is it that keeps people in spiritual death? And if you look at verse two, you will you will be introduced to three conspirators who have plotted to keep us what we were created for. Paul makes it absolutely clear in Ephesians 1 that we are created for the praise of his glory, God's glory. But three conspirators have plotted to overthrow our lives. And these conspirators are these, the world, the prince, and the flesh. Allow me to introduce them to you. The first being the world. Verse 2, the world. Now when Paul talks about the world in verse 2, he's not talking about the parks and the wildlife. But he is talking about an environment. He's talking about a system, a way of life, a course. Following the course 
of this world. It's a course that schools us into doing life without giving God any thought at all. It's a course that wants us to live as if God doesn't exist, or at least if his existence doesn't matter. It's an outcome-based course whose curriculum teaches us to ignore God and just to simply depend on ourselves. It's a self-help course. It's a course that shows up in government. It shows up in the economy. It shows up in advertising, in media, in music, in leisure, and yes, even in some church growth management principles. It's a course which denies the existence of evil and in doing so unleashes evil at epic proportions. Following the course of this world. And the biggest problem, the biggest problem with the world is this. And please, church family, please get this. Look up here for a moment. The biggest problem is it's not real. It's not real. In Peter Gay's book, The Way of the Modern World, he quotes an individual named Oliver O'Donovan, and I've got that quote at the bottom of your outline. The world is not the real and good world that God has made, nor any other real world, but a fantasy world of sinful imagination, a nothingness which will destroy us if we love it. And why? Because it is nothingness and offers nothing on which we may nourish ourselves. Get that phrase. A fantasy world of sinful imagination. And and just to make sure I'm being crystal clear on this point, let me quote from another theologian, Lady Gaga. So recently, a famous fashion designer interviewed Lady Gaga. And, I mean, it was typical Gaga, stark, bizarre. She spoke of her life, her career, her philosophy. And, you know, it's no secret that she, she projects this message of radical, you know, acceptance. Be yourself. If you're a monster, you know, be a little monster. And she calls her fans, you know, my little monsters and... And yet, toward the end of the interview, she said something. She said, I think it's why I like fashion and style so much. I feel the ability to create an alternate fantasy and reality for myself that if I do it over and over again every single day of my life, falling asleep in my wigs, my makeup, my jewelry, my dresses, then somehow my fantasy becomes my reality. Wow. Question. Why would we need to create an alternate reality if we truly accepted ourselves? But that's what we do, don't we? And it's exhausting, isn't it? Building facades, creating another identity either in person or online, trying to avoid yourself so people won't see you as you really are. 
It's exhausting. It's constant maintenance. Well, that's the world. See, that's the world. That, that's the world in first century Ephesus. It's the world in 21st century Champaign-Urbana. It's a fantasy world of sinful imagination keeping us in the morgue. And it doesn't operate alone. Paul says it's aided by a second conspirator whom he calls the prince, the prince of the power of the air. Who is this prince? Well, this prince is identified in Ephesians 4, 18 and Ephesians 6, 11 as the devil. Now laugh if you want. You know, roll your eyes at me and look at your watch. Go ahead. But the Bible is frighteningly clear that the stage of this world is occupied by actors both seen and unseen. There's an unseen spiritual realm occupied by spiritual insurgents and the chief insurgent is none other than Satan himself. Once an angel, that is a created being, who is not all-knowing, all-powerful, or, or ever-present. A created being, but now the principal rebel and leader of, uh, of fallen angels, whom Paul calls principalities and powers, dominions and authorities. All of whom are in rebellion against the holy God. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the Apostle Paul calls Satan the God of this world. The God of this world. That world that I just described for you moments ago. And Satan's native tongue, his native language is lying. Lying. <laughs> Satan's weapon of choice is not his bicep. It's his mouth. And when introduced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Genesis 3, 1 says that the serpent was more crafty than any other of the wild animals the Lord God made. So the first thing we learn, we learn Satan's a smart mouth. And his first words to Adam and Eve, very first words out of his mouth, did God really say, And then he challenged God. He challenged him. You, you won't die. You won't die. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That is to say, the very first doctrine of the Bible to be challenged was the doctrine of judgment. And Satan accuses God of withholding blessing from Adam and Eve. He baits both Adam and Eve with, with the passion and desire of this God-like function. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And he doesn't want your eyes open because then you'll be like him. And if you're like him, he won't be able to control you. So go ahead. And they did. And they ate. And they didn't answer the phone. They still haven't answered the phone. <laughs> and they were ashamed. <laughs> uh, and they hid. And then they blamed. Right? Remember? Remember what, the, remember what God said? You know? 
Adam, what? where are you? Well, we're hiding. Well, why are you hiding? We're naked. Who told you you were naked? Who brought that up? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? Adam's first words out of his mouth. You know, what a, what a leader. The woman you put me with. boy. <laughs> and God looked at Eve, right? What's your problem? The devil made me do it. See? And we've been blaming ever since. Blaming ever since. And you know, you get so frustrated, you, you, you get so frustrated with your marriage that you uh, make a decision that you're going to go and see your pastor. And the pastor listens, and then your pastor takes out a sheet of paper and draws a circle and says, you know, this is a pie that represents responsibility in your marriage. I want you to just, I want you to just carve out the piece of pie that you feel is your responsibility for this issue. And then the person proceeds to make a little teeny weeny little slice. And then your pastor says, okay, well, let's talk about that little teeny weeny slice. And for the next 50 minutes, you talk about everything else but that little teeny weeny pie. And because you're playing, let the blames begin. That marriage isn't going to get any better. started with Adam and Eve and it's been passed on to us this this thing that's gone viral called sin and that's why the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so sin spread to all men because all sinned we're talking the world we're talking the prince. And what I just talked about down here leads us to this third conspirator. The flesh. The flesh. Do you see that? Paul says, we all once lived. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Yes, while there are larger forces at work keeping us enslaved, in death, <laughs> let's not give Satan all the credit, okay? Truth be told, we're willing participants. We aid and abet the world and the prince by selfishly advancing our puny little kingdom of one. And the apostle Paul calls this puny little kingdom of one the flesh. And it's almost like there's another person living inside, you know, who has thoughts and desires and impulses. You know, the Apostle Paul kind of personifies the flesh when Paul says that the flesh, you know, carries out 
the desires of the body and the mind. The, 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 the flesh is like this executor that carries these thoughts and desires and impulses. And, 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 and the flesh produces what one author calls a readiness to sin. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, talks about this, the readiness to sin factor that's inside all of us. This, this readiness to sin is so real. Sometimes it just takes the slightest nudge to unleash a flood of profanity or a surge of slander. This, this readiness to sin pokes us to, to retaliate and humiliate and punish people. I mean, it doesn't take much to get most people to lie. It doesn't. It doesn't take much to, to, for people to take what it doesn't belong to them or to get others to think how nice it would be if someone else were dead. And then Dallas Willard asks, can you recognize this readiness to sin factor in your life? What happened the last time someone tried to cut in front of you at a crowded checkout counter? Our daily lives even just driving home and to work, they provide ample opportunity for the readiness to sin factor to come out. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? And then Willard asks this, how many of us live with the conscious awareness that there's a powerful, destructive force at work inside of you seeking to deceive you, disorient you, disrupt you, and destroy you? There was a pastor uh, years and years ago. His name was Alexander White. A wonderful, wonderful man, wonderful pastor. He knew all too well the reality of his flesh, though. And White served a congregation. He was there for 40 years. And after church, in whatever his four-year looked like, this lovely lady came up to him and, and said, Dr. White, I just love being in your presence. You are so saintly, you know? Because you know, he's a minister. He's a nice man, right? Ministers are nice. And Alexander White looked at her with great, sobriety and seriousness and he said this he said madam if you could look into my soul what you would see would make you spit in my face see he understood the flesh the world the prince the flesh And what's the result of this conspiracy? What, what's, what's this spiritual death lead to? Verse 3, Paul tells us, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now what does that mean? It, it means this church family, you know, God's wrath, it does not mean that God is just this moody, uncontrollable deity that just flies off it's not that at all. It means simply this. It means that God is not going to stand idly by and let anybody take what belongs to him. That's what that means. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. 
There's some things God won't share. He won't share his glory. It's his glory. And if our creator God gives us life and then we choose to detach ourselves from such life and if we defy this God, you tell me what else is there but death. God did not create image bearers so that they could be completely independent of his existence and then redefine good and evil. That's not why we were created. And if if we pronounce on our own good and evil and we just put those definitions and turn them on their heads and choose to want to be God ourselves, what else is there for us but death? And it's here that we're learning that sin is not merely about breaking divine rules. It's deeper. It's more sinister than that, church family. Sin is allegiance to one's fantasy world. Sin is about trying to find our identity and source of significance apart from God. Sin is about trusting an insurgent's lying tongue over the beloved creator's truth. Sin is about feeding your flesh and living for the praise of someone else's glory. And that's why Paul says that life without Christ is a living death. And that's why this world's broken. That's why. And that's why we must passionately pursue Christ. Listen, listen. The Bible is going to make absolutely no sense at all to you if you can't agree upon what it says the problem is. And it's virtually impossible to try to rescue someone who doesn't think they're in peril. And some of you are here today and you have been coming Sunday after Sunday and you don't think there's a problem. And you're living in a fantasy world. You're dead. Will you see that? Do you see that? You see these captors in your life? The world and its false view of reality? Do you see that there's an unseen enemy who wants to wreck your life? And do you see your own complicity in cooperating with the flesh? You see this? And do you see where this is going? And if you sit there and you think, well, what am I supposed to do? See, you still don't get it. You still don't get it. You can't do anything. You're dead.
You're dead. But God. I think those are the two most beautiful words in all of Scripture. But God. But God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The gospel says that God through Christ, has defeated the power of these conspirators. The gospel says that Christ came into the world, this dead world. He came to destroy the prince of this world. Jesus Christ came on a counterinsurgency mission to destroy, to kill the work of Satan and his weapon of choice, the cross. The cross. He came in the flesh. He came in the flesh, and yet he was without sin. And he substituted himself for us in an act of grace which satisfied the justice of God the Father. And in his death and burial and resurrection, Christ has exhausted the power of evil. It's been dealt a death blow. It's been dealt a death blow. But God. And so now what do we do? Well, you know what? Here's what we do. Believe. Believe. Jesus said there, there is a work there is a work that we must do. It is the work of faith. Believe. And in faith, we bring the very thing that keeps us dead from God, we bring that to God. How shall I go to God? It's with our sins that we go to God. We bring our sins because that's all we have to offer Him. That's all. And if you don't bring your sins to God, you can't take one right step to God. Have you done that? Have you? Paul said to the Ephesians, oh, I remember what you once were. You remember what you once were? Some of you haven't gotten to that point yet. And you need to turn to God and bring Him your life, your sins, today, here and now. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that. As we worship in song more, as we receive Holy Communion, I want, you, I want to give you the opportunity to do business with our Creator God. We give you the opportunity to call on Him in prayer.
And I want to give you the opportunity after services to come and receive prayer from our elders who would love to shepherd you, love to pray with you and over you. Prayer to receive Jesus as King. And you know what you can even do today? To demonstrate that prayer, that calling on the Lord in baptism. I mean, you can leave today having done that. We're ready. So, what's it going to be? Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for those precious words, but God. Thank you for the work of Christ. Thank you that he entered and invaded this world. Thank you that he came with the intent purpose of destroying Satan's work. And thank you that he came in the flesh and yet lived so sinlessly so that he could be the perfect substitution, this gift of grace to us that satisfies your holiness. For it is because of him that we can be called saints. And thank you that you've given us these visual symbols, these visual demonstrations of Christ's work through communion and baptism. And so we now thank you and worship as we prepare.